Welcome to Peer Spectrum, the show where we uncover the creative solutions, innovative tools, and advanced practices of our peers, both inside and outside of medicine. Recharge and refocus with incredible stories, unique perspectives, and unforgettable conversations. Get ready to see what's working. Get ready to see what's ahead. Get ready to see things differently. Get ready for Peer Spectrum. Now your hosts, Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Colin Miller here with Keith Mankin. So, where did the Air Force's elite bomber crews, fighter jet pilots, and even drone navigators go when they need to see a doctor? They go see a guy like today's guest, Dr. Ryan Gray. Ryan is an aerospace medicine physician, also known as a flight surgeon. As a flight surgeon, Ryan treated some of the Air Force's most elite flyers. He was also responsible for evaluating their flight readiness, sometimes having to ground pilots and crew members who were not medically cleared to fly. As you can imagine, not everyone was eager to find themselves in Ryan's clinic, fearing a medical disqualification that could literally ground their careers. We're going to learn how Ryan navigated this challenging dynamic and the tactics he used to build trust with his patients. We're also going to learn how a young airman's question sparked a new mission for Ryan, the mission he now pursues as an educator and physician entrepreneur. Today, Ryan is the founder and CEO of the Medical School Headquarters, an incredibly successful enterprise dedicated to helping students enter into and succeed in medical school. He is also a fellow podcast host with not one, but four very popular podcasts, all dedicated to helping the next generation of physicians. This is a fun and fascinating episode. I think you're going to really enjoy it. With that said, let's get started. Dr. Ryan Gray. Ryan, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you. It's good to be here, Colin. Thanks for having me. Ryan, let's just take us back here a couple steps. I think many of our viewers do know what a flight surgeon is, but certainly there are people who do not. Um, we know it's not about doing surgery on a plane, is it? What, what was involved with your position in the Air Force? And give us an idea how you got into that. So how I got into it, I'll start there, is I was kind of forced into it. Um, I went to the Air Force and I said, hey, I want you to pay for medical school. Uh, I, I think with the average debt of students coming out of medical school being somewhere in the range of $170,000 now, uh, I knew that I wanted some financial freedom after medical school, and so I went to the Air Force and and asked them to pay for it, and I, I applied for the scholarship and was accepted, and that was kind of without any knowledge of what happens on the other end when you're actually applying for residency matching, and so I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. That was the only reason I went to medical school. I... I wanted to marry my love of anatomy and physiology and my love of sports and, and be an orthopedic surgeon. And unbeknownst to me, again, being very naive about the whole process, orthopedics is one of the hardest residencies to match into, especially as a military person in the Air Force where they only have one orthopedic residency program in the Air Force. And it's very academy-driven, meaning... Uh, Air Force Academy graduates get those spots if they're, mm -hmm. if they're interested in them. And so they said, nope, we don't want you to be an orthopedic surgeon. Go do a one-year internship and reapply again next year. So I reapplied, <laughs> and they again said, nope, we still don't want you to be an orthopedic surgeon. You're going to be a flight surgeon. Or they, they actually said, you're going to be a, a GMO, a general medical officer. And usually that means you're going to be a flight surgeon if you're healthy enough. And at that time, I was healthy enough to be a flight surgeon and I was like, okay, what the heck is a flight surgeon? So it, after I'm told I'm going to be a flight surgeon was when I was like, what the heck is that? And so it was a, it was a learning curve for me. Um, and it ended up being an awesome job. Um, the, the patient population that I was treating, very similar to what I would want to treat as an orthopedic surgeon, young, healthy people wanting to get back to their career uh, as pilots, as loadmasters or engineers, um, as a flight surgeon, you're basically a primary care physician for pilots and, and co-pilots and, and navigators and anybody that's working on the plane while it's in the air and you're taking care of them and their families. Uh, and it was just, it was great relationships with patients. Uh, I had a blast doing it. I loved flying. As a flight surgeon, you're required to be up in the air with the air crew for four hours a month. I loved building that rapport with patients. I went on to get my private pilot's license and uh, had, had always had a fascination with airplanes. So it was, it was a really cool job. So 
Were you typically, you know, assuming you're not deployed, you're typically attached to maybe a unit to one flight crew to a particular base? I mean, what? how many patients were you seeing at any given time? It depends on the base. So some bases you're actually attached to the, the flying unit. Some bases you're part of the medical group, like a normal, like a normal doctor, and you're just you're seeing the patients as they're coming through the clinics for their annual exams or their colds and their flus and aches and pains like any other patient. Um, but yeah, some, sometimes you're actually attached to the flying unit and when they deploy, you deploy. And um, yeah, it's really, it's really cool. Part of your duties, as I understand it, is you would have to give some tough news occasionally. And you were evaluating people for their flight readiness, I take it. Mm -hmm. Um, And not just flight. I mean, it could be firemen. It could be loadmasters, whatever their position is. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. You know, first of all, what are the medical requirements for a pilot, for example? (laughs) And what what are you looking for? And how do you assess that? I mean, are you pulling people out? Is it just part of the regular yearly exam? Just give us an idea what's going on. Yeah, so the medical requirements are all in uh, the AFI, the Air Force Instruction 48123. <laughs> you can Google that. It's a public document if you want to go read that lovely uh, Air Force gibberish. Um, it, it basically is, is a list of you, you're not allowed to have this disease or this condition or, or this or that. And if you had that condition, um, there would be a set rule. So... For instance, if you if you got a kidney stone, um, then you're usually grounded for three months until we figure out um, making sure that, that, that it's a one-time thing, that the kidney stone passes, that it's not going to happen again. Uh, there, if you have um, just general musculoskeletal issues, a herniated disc, then you're you're grounded. I think that maybe that the herniated disc is the one where you're grounded for three months. The kidney stone is, is a little different, but uh, a herniated disc, it's like automatic three month, uh, your what we call DNIF, duties not to include flying. And <laughs> um, you, yeah, it's, it's crazy. And so you have to have this very unique relationship with patients because they don't want to see you. Um, because every time they do see you, there's an opportunity for them to, to lose their ability to fly. And so that's part of the reason why you're required to go fly every month for four hours because you're building that rapport with them. Uh, but you're also experiencing what the job is like for them. And so a normal physician, if you're a normal family practice physician, you see a, a patient coming in with some knee pain. They, they tweak their knee playing soccer they're all uh, a weekend road warrior and, and they, they tweak their knee playing soccer. You give them a script for some physical therapy and they go on their day. As a flight surgeon, if I have a pilot that comes in that tweaked his or her knee playing soccer over the weekend, I have to understand what their job is like. And if they're flying a big heavy aircraft like a C-5 or C-17, and, and so let's say it's a, a C-17. It's got one engine on each side. If they lose an engine on one side, to be able to keep flying the plane and land it, they need to push full rudder to keep the plane going straight. And if that's the side where they sprain their knee, are they going to be able to do that? Hmm. And so that's how I would evaluate patients like okay you sprained your knee you have a cold are you going to be able to clear your ears coming down from altitude um those those types of questions would come through my mind it's very different thinking than uh than a normal physician it's it's what's known in the in the medical world as as occupational medicine uh in the real world the non the non-military world occupational medicine comes into play with Department of Transportation physicals for uh, for truck drivers, and really, that's the, the Air Force—not um, Air Force, but firefighters in the civilian world. They have medical requirements. The NFPA has guidelines for that. I would also see firefighters in the Air Force and, and follow those same um, NFPA guidelines. 
National Fire Protection Agency, maybe. I forget what the NFPA stands for. <laughs> um, or National Fraternal, uh, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's it, the evaluations and the ability to to tell people, look, you're you're done. I'm sorry. I, I had a firefighter come in once for his annual physical, and we got a a blood test on him, and, and his hemoglobin. Um, I, one of them was in the tank, and and I forget which which of them was. I think his his hematocrit was like thirty, uh, which is crappy. <laughs> like, and I, I called the dude. I'm like, hey, like I need you to come back in and retest this to make sure this is a real value. And he got mad at me. He's like, no, you screwed this up once. I don't trust you. And and they, it's the same thing. Like they just don't trust us because I could. I could tell a firefighter that he can no longer be a firefighter. And and as pilots, as firefighters, as physicians, we associate our our worth, our our self with our career. And so if you tell a firefighter that they can't fight fires anymore, then it's a huge hit to their um, to their self-esteem and, and just to their person. And so he was very evasive and I said, "Look, if you're not going to come in and retest this, then I'm going to have to suspend you from firefighter duties like immediately. I'm going to come over and, and give this to the fire chief, uh, a piece of paper that says that you can't fight fires. Because if that number's real, if his hematocrit's really that low, and he needs to go fight a fire and put on a fire suit and exert himself, that dude could have a heart attack because he's not, he's not yeah. transporting enough oxygen. So... Uh, and it turned out to be a real value. He went and saw his primary care doctor, followed up with a hematologist, and, and there was something going on that caused his, his hematocrit to be in the tank. And so luckily I, I suspended him and he got all of his stuff back up to normal and I was able to return him in a couple months. So it's those kind of stories that are, are really cool and very unique. Sure. Ryan, I did a lot of uh, performance-type medicine, so dancers and gymnasts, things like that. They used to hide from me, so they Mm -hmm. would injure themselves. They would hide. They might limp around. Um, I'm presuming that there are uh, ways to keep the the pilots and and the important personnel from hiding. What kind of ways do you have of that? Uh, It's hard. Um, Part of the part of the way you do that with the military it's it's unique because it's a it's a big hmo right it's tricare right. is is the health insurance that is used and as a military physician i'm the in-network doctor and so they have to see me um, if they want their medical care paid for there have been some stories of people going outside the system and and trying to use their spouse's insurance or paying out of pocket for care but really if if there's something wrong they're gonna have to come see me to be able to take care of whatever's going on with them and so that's how we kind of make sure that we are tracking them appropriately and and making sure that if there is an issue what what typically comes into play is is they'll just not go to to us period and won't handle any sort of issues until it becomes a big issue and so I, I'd always like to say, like, if they're in to see me, then there's something wrong, and we're gonna take a look at it. It's it's not in the in the civilian world where somebody's paying a, t- a twenty dollar copay to try to get out of work for a couple weeks because they they stubbed their toe or something. And I, I know it's not as bad as that, but um, it, it seems to always be. Um, so it's it's definitely um, they it really comes down to the rapport that you build with them and and making sure that they trust that you have their best interest in mind and there i've heard horror stories of flight surgeons that weren't weren't good at that and mm-hmm. would ground people and deniff them uh for the littlest things and so they would lose faith in the, that flight surgeon and would avoid that person at all costs and so you you have to use some flexibility in reading these Air Force instructions like okay because it's it's written very much like a legal document and so you're like okay well you meet 9 out of 10 of these but not this 10th one so I'm not going to ground you yet (laughs) 
so let's let's work on this other stuff. I'll let you keep flying. And and I would always judge it based on do I feel number one, am I following the rules? That's that's obviously the first. Um, right. Or is there some flexibility, a loophole in here that I could find? Um, but number two, do I feel safe flying with you with this condition? Right. Um, and so that's that's always my measure of judgment because I was flying with them. I was up in the right. air with these guys and girls. And so <laughs> if I felt safe with them, if they didn't meet the criteria to be grounded 100%, then I wouldn't ground them and we'd work through whatever they had. So, I mean, give us an idea of those four hours. You required four hours a month to, to fly with somebody. What was the conversation like in there? Were they kind of avoiding you? Were they asking you to maybe go check on something in the back? Uh, you know, or did they just want to talk about sports or anything else, not to talk about medical issues? What, what, was, yeah. what was that like? You're, you're just part of the air crew at that point. You go in and, and you go through the, the pre-mission briefing and talk about what you're going to be doing. Uh, you go out to the airplane and, and help do pre-flight stuff and just kind of hang out and observe and watch and listen. Um, yeah, there's there's not a lot of medical talk going on. There were some times where we'd be flying long missions to Iraq and Afghanistan and Germany or wherever. And so there was time to <laughs> for them to pull me aside. Hey, Doc. Hey, Doc, I have a question. Um, and But most of the time, you're just you're up there chatting about random stuff. You certainly don't need to go in, into any detail, but were there times when you were on these four hours of flight where you noticed there was a problem and you actually had to take somebody aside and say, you've got to come in and see me? Not that I can think of off the top of my head. Good. So that's interesting. I mean, from the Air Force's standpoint, this is really about building relationships. I mean, yep. they're not sending you out there to just go find people and uncover things that are falling, you know, underneath the uh, the radar screen. I mean, they're... That's that's an interesting approach because when I think of Keith and you know as a pediatric orthopedist, having that relationship and understanding what these kids are going through, it, it, it's not easy to tell somebody, hey, you've got a concussion, you've got to take some time off. I'm not telling you you can't do this anymore, but you have to take some time off, or you may not be able to do it again later. Yeah, and it, it could be any any number of injuries. So yeah, yeah I think there's, there's a lot. You know, our viewers can learn from from your experience here. There's there's a big difference between a gymnast who has a concussion and you tell her or him, look, I need you to, to, to lay off uh, gymnastics for a couple weeks as we go through this protocol. If, if they continue to do gymnastics, they're only going to hurt themselves, potentially. If I have a pilot who's trying to hide something from me and they're flying a $100 million machine over a populated area, <laughs> and has an issue, they, there are a lot of other things to think about, right? So right. Um, they're, right. they're flying at this, this huge aircraft with po potentially hundreds of millions of dollars of cargo on board, potential munitions on board, flying over populated areas. So there are a lot of other <laughs> issues uh, at play than just that patient. This is kind of off-the-wall question, but how about the drone pilots? And you're sitting in, yeah. well, I understand, a cubicle all day, right? At least from yep. what little I've read about it. Um, are they under the same medical requirements as, a, as any other pilot? Yep. For the most part, they are exactly the same. Obviously, things like colds and stuff where I don't have to worry about ear pressurization and, and atmospheric pressures uh, are a little bit different. So they, they, there are a little different um, procedures and, and policies for them. But they have different issues as well. Uh, and one of the biggest things that we're seeing um, is the the psychologic ramifications of being at war during the day and flying drones over war zones and and potentially killing people and firing missiles and doing things and then being at home at night with the family and having to to separate those two things. It's it's very new and unique to to being a drone pilot. Were you? Um... I'm sorry. Were you responsible for uh, psychological evaluation as well, or at least uh, on the basis? Okay. Yeah, it's all part of it. Interesting. It is. So these drone pilots, are they, I mean, I know there's one base in Nevada where they are, and mm -hmm. there's probably some other secret ones we don't know about, <laughs> but that really is what's happening, huh? They, they, it's a, they do a shift, and then they come home at night. Yep. Um, is, are they doing research on that right now? Because this is, 
this is pretty new territory, isn't it? I would assume so. I, I don't have any knowledge of, of research that's going on, but I'm a, I would assume so. There's always uh, a lot of research that they're doing. Sure. Well, before we get on, because we got some other things we really want to discuss with you, just back to becoming a flight surgeon, you, you wanted to be an orthopedist, and that does happen a lot. We have a lot of medical students and residents listening right now, and you don't always end up going exactly where you thought you were. What are your, you know, take us back to that moment when you found out you weren't going to become an orthopedist. You're going to become a flight surgeon. So you had to figure out what, exactly what this was. And how did you deal with that? How did you, how did you approach that problem and, and move forward? Um, a little bit of anger at first. <laughs> like, what, what the heck? Um, but my point of view has always been one from having an open mind and and being flexible obviously I knew I was in the military I needed to be uh, somewhat flexible with with my career choice I didn't know at first with career choice um, but with location with where I was living and and what I could do with my life um, I, I went in with an open mind and I'm sitting there during my my aerospace medicine training that's what the the technical term for for the medicine that we practice as a flight surgeon is is aerospace medicine and i'm sitting there with a lot of other students like myself or not students anymore physicians recently graduated and finished internship um who were in the same boat as myself we we joined the military through this health profession scholarship and they wanted to be dermatologists and emergency medicine physicians and orthopedic surgeons and whatever else and they didn't get what they wanted and a lot of them were bitter and mad and and if they could get out immediately they w- they would a lot of them swore right then and there that they were going to do whatever they could to get out as fast as possible and and do as little as possible uh, and i just went in with an open mind and about a week into the, my training Again, having having a lifelong fascination with airplanes, I called my wife, who uh, was doing her residency in neurology at, at Mass General in Boston, and I was down in San Antonio for this training, and I said, what happens if I really like being a flight surgeon? She's like, <laughs> well, we'll make it work. We'll figure it out. And so that's I, I came from it from, from with an open mind and, and really absorbed as much as I could and and embraced it and I really loved it and then several years later I was (laughs) I was on the receiving end of being grounded and that kind of uh, short-circuited my my military career right and we'll address this with the pre-medical but I often talk to the medical students that I work with and tell them that you you don't know what you're gonna go into necessarily you have an idea but then um, people are always surprised by a class that just catches fire with them or, or something that they're just fascinated by. Um, if I hadn't gone into orthopedics, it probably would have been child psychiatry because I just loved that. And I yep. didn't predict that at all. So um, so you had the, the lucky, fortunate experience of finding something you really loved by happenstance, and that worked out well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Ryan, you said you were grounded. Um, take us through the, you know, the transition from the Air Force mm-hmm. into... You know, what you're doing now. Yeah, so I uh, I started my active duty service in July of 2010. A couple years in, thought I was going to make a career of it. Really loved it. Was going to apply to, um, potentially apply to be a pilot physician. Uh, that, that was a program that was available. Usually you're a pilot first and then go on to medical school. And they were short pilot physicians and so they were reaching out to physicians who were potentially interested in learning how to be a pilot and I had already had my private pilot's license so I had this passion for flying and knew how to fly and I was like hey I'm interested and they're like oh you're too old (laughs) and so I was like okay I won't apply then and they're like you're too old and we're not giving waivers Um, usually in in the military in the air force you can you can waive anything. Like, here's this regulation, but we'll waive it for you. Um, and so 
it, it turned out to be a, a kind of a blessing in disguise that I didn't start down that path because a year later, roughly, um, I started having some weird facial symptoms, some facial paresthesias. And my wife's a neurologist, so I, I told her, and she's like, oh, let's, let's see what happens. And it went away after about a week. It felt like I had shaved with a, a dull razor on, on half of my face. And about six months later, it came back a little bit worse. Um, again, feeling like I'd shaved with a dull razor, but instead of my, my cheek area where you shave, it was my scalp too. And at that point, my wife, the neurologist, was like, let's go get a brain MRI and see what's going on with your trigeminal nerve. And so I got the brain MRI, and um, I, I do have a brain, which is awesome, and it was normal. Uh, nothing, nothing significant going on in there. And again, six months later, just like clockwork, symptoms came back, and same thing, my face, my, my head, my scalp, and then this time the back of my neck. Uh, all on the left side. And so again, she's like, okay, let's, this is doctoring your own family members, which we've learned is not the best idea. I had an appointment set up with a neurologist, but it was so far out that it took forever to, to see one. Um, and so I went and got a C-spine MRI. And in my C-spine, I had a prominent lesion at C2, and uh, which come to find out from anatomy, there is the the spinal trigeminal nucleus right around C2, right where my lesion is. And so that's why I was having facial symptoms with a spinal cord lesion. So it's really cool anatomy. It sucks that it was mine. And so after a while and some different MRIs and more symptoms, I eventually met the criteria, the, the, the McDonald criteria for MS. And... Uh, after, after that diagnosis and, and that first MRI of having this demyelinating disease, I was grounded. <laughs> that was, that was a big that that's on that list of if you have a demyelinating disease, you are not allowed to fly, uh, specifically MS. Um, with the, the thinking behind that is that seventy five percent I think is the number seventy five percent of MS patients have um, some cognitive deficits. And obviously, they don't want you flying around if you're not able to think straight. Um, it didn't really make sense for me why they wouldn't let me fly. Number one, I'm a flight surgeon, so I'm not actually flying the aircraft. Um, and number two, I only had spinal cord lesions, nothing in my brain. So the last I checked, there's there's no cognition in your spinal cord. So uh, it was a big fight. I, I fought and fought and fought and eventually gave up and said, okay, now it's <laughs> maybe it's time to start thinking about something else. They were perfectly happy letting me stay on as a flight surgeon, but they wouldn't let me back up in the air. And as we talked about for a while earlier, being up in the air is where you build trust with patients. And if you're not flying, then your effectiveness, I think, as a flight surgeon goes down. So at this point, I, I know you have a certain obligation to the military after they pay for medical school. Mm -hmm. What are your options right now? Um, and then where did this take you from the, from this diagnosis? Yeah, so luckily it was right around the period where my my obligation was up. I think I'd maybe signed on for an extra year, and so I had a little bit of time to think about what I wanted to do next. And a couple years before this diagnosis, I had started my website, Medical School Headquarters, um, as a as a website dedicated to helping students into and through medical school with, with real information. That was kind of where I was coming from when I started the website. There's Student Doctor Network out there, which is, for at least from on the pre-med side, it's pre-meds helping pre-meds based on information they learned from other pre-meds. And it's very cutthroat, very negative, and usually very wrong. Um, and so I wanted to have a website that had real information from real sources and started that and started the podcast a couple months after that. So I had this thing kind of brewing on the side and talking to my wife and trying to figure out what were the next steps for me. If I got out of the military, would I go back and do my ortho residency and with a new diagnosis of MS? Is that really smart going to, to work for five years, 80 to 100 hours a week killing myself and seeing how bad I could make my MS? Or do I try to do this entrepreneurial thing and, and see what happens there? And so 
we decided to try the entrepreneurial thing and now uh, a full uh, a year plus into it it's going like gangbusters which is awesome That's great it's interesting so you were still in the air force you had this idea what triggered this for you what made you think that there was such a deficit out there that you needed to do something about it there were a lot of experiences going through my pre-med journey number one i, I went to what what usually is the number one producer of medical students in the country at University of Florida. And when you look at undergrad institutions for number of matriculants into medical school, they're usually at the top with three to 400 students every year. And my pre-med advisor told me not to apply to medical school. This was, I think, my, my sophomore year. Uh, not because I had bad grades, I hadn't taken the MCAT yet, because she said I was a white male and that white males uh, have a, a very hard time getting into medical school. And so that was the last time I talked to her. And yeah. uh, so I kind of <laughs> went on it, <laughs> went on the journey on my own, made a lot of mistakes. And and so that was kind of the first thing, having that experience. And now doing this for five years, listening to other stories, right before we got on this call, I talked to a student who did poorly on the MCAT her first time. And her advisor said, don't take the MCAT again. Like, you can't, you, you won't get into medical school taking the MCAT twice. <laughs> I'm like, that's just yeah. ridiculous. That's just not yeah. true. It's not based on anything yeah. in reality. And so there are these advisors out there. There are a lot of right. great advisors, but there are a lot of advisors that don't know what they're talking about. And so that that was one angle that I was coming from. And then the other angle is this student doctor <clears throat> world of of if if I could inspire one student who went on to student doctor network and read something and and they 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 read it and go well I don't I don't have a 4.0 GPA I don't have a perfect MCAT score I guess I can't be a doctor if I could take that person and show them that yes they can be a doctor if this is if they're going into it for the right reasons if they have good enough grades, a good enough MCAT score, they have all the other experiences and, and life uh, experiences that will make them a great applicant, then it can be done. If I can take just one person like that and show them that it can be done and, and help them get in, then then I've done my job. And so that was kind of the impetus for starting what I did. And and luckily I have many of those stories to tell now of students that are are doing that. We talked a little bit before the episode. You were actually approached while you were in the Air Force by a another service member. Mm-hmm. Just curious about this, right? That- yeah. Yeah, so that, that, that was kind of the – I skipped over that step of actually realizing that I liked talking about this stuff. Because um, now, again, being five years into this, if, if I didn't like talking about it, then I wouldn't be here. Um, but just realizing, having, having a young 18-, 19-year-old – airmen come up to me and and say hey dr gray i'm i'm interested in potentially going to medical school what did it take what did you do what do i need to do and just realizing that i would sit them down and talk to them for an hour and a half and and liked what i was talking about that was really the the big spark of, of giving me these ideas and we want to get into that a little bit here, too, about the idea of mentorship and how some of our viewers can get involved. But um, before we do that, just give us an idea of what your business looks like today. Um, you've got, I believe, four different podcasts. You have a website. You have books. Um, how did you get to that point? And, <laughs> where, and just give us an idea of you know, what, what your business has evolved into today. So the business side of things started... Everything started with the website, and I I tried to make money with advertising uh, on the website, and that really didn't work. Um, and I loved listening to podcasts, so I'm like, I could do a podcast. I'm I'm a huge introvert, and so uh, being out at conferences and other things just drains all of my energy. But for some reason, sitting on a microphone with a computer in between you and somebody else isn't isn't as draining, uh, which is good. And so I loved listening to podcasts. I'm like, let me let me try a podcast. And so I started the podcast, and really the podcast is what has taken over everything. Um, the podcast has been going now for 200 and 
as we record this now, 225 straight weeks. And um, I monetized the podcast a little bit with some sponsorships. And uh, my my first big endeavor was a membership site helping uh, kind of a group coaching for pre-meds. There are some other private pre-med advisors out there that were charging $5,000 for a weekend um, to prepare applications. And I was like, that's just wow. ridiculous. That's a lot of money, number one. And number two, the, the that tactic of kind of a last-minute, let's prepare your applications in a weekend to get you ready for applying doesn't allow the ability to fix anything that may be wrong with the application. So... I wanted to be able to, to have students be able to afford working with me, getting my information, my knowledge, and and help them correct what's wrong as they go through the process so that when it's time to apply, they just need to put all the information together. And so I, I launched that back in September of 2013, I believe, about a year into podcasting, and had 50-plus members sign up, was doing pretty well. But I was working full-time at that point. I had a baby on the way, and so I didn't have the time that I needed to dedicate to what I wanted to do with it. And so it kind of fizzled over time, and I eventually closed that um, to new members. And when I decided to get out, and when I actually got out of the military, I sent an email to my email list and people that were waiting to get into this membership site. I said, look, the membership site's not going to open up again, um, but I'm available for one-on-one help. And so once I sent that email, the money kind of started flowing in, which was awesome. And it was just a huge validation that everything that I was talking about on the podcast, the value that I was providing these people resonated with them, and they trusted me enough to spend money to work with me. And so right now, that's the majority of my my income is through consulting, really, with pre-med students. And the majority of them are non-traditional students, so they don't have access to a pre-med advisor. These are students that are changing careers um, and and aren't in undergrad school anymore. Maybe they're doing a post-bac somewhere. And so I help them with their application prep. I help them prepare through interviews, uh, interview process, the mock interview process. And I help them with their, their personal statement editing. And it's funny, I, I see a lot of people kind of popping up and doing these things. A lot of medical students will start these services. And the, the impetus, again, behind what I started was that I wanted to not just tell my story and say, oh, here's, here's the personal statement that I wrote. This is how you should write your personal statement. Or here's how I prepared for my interviews. This is what you should say during your interview. I, again, 225 weeks into my podcast, I've talked to deans of medical schools, deans of admissions at multiple medical schools, and and I'm aggregating all this information. And so I'm not giving my quote-unquote personal advice when I'm doing these mock interviews and reading these personal statements. I'm using the information that I'm getting from people that are doing this stuff for medical schools and, and trying to to use their words and their language and their advice as I'm reading this stuff. So it's it's funny when I see doctors that are starting these businesses on the side without all of that other information because I don't think it does the student justice. Right. You know, a lot of what we talk about on this podcast is focusing on areas that aren't covered in medical school and training. That could be the economics of healthcare, negotiation of contracts, legal issues, patient communication. How aware are these kids of the world they're coming into? Because right now, we really don't know, you know, what the national health care landscape is going to look like in a few years. It's a big question mark. Are they thinking about these things, Ryan? Are they just putting that aside because they really want to be doctors? What kind of questions are you getting from these kids these days? You know, it's, it's funny. I, I tell students not to worry about what the healthcare system looks like because by the time they're done with their training, it could be totally different. And... And and I get I get weird looks when uh, when I say that, but it I I wholeheartedly believe it because the the role of a physician never changes behind closed doors. As soon as you're in that patient exam room and you're building that relationship with the patient and you're connecting with them, trying to figure out what's wrong with them, trying to heal them, make them better, whatever it is, 
that has never changed from the beginning of time. What's changing is how we're documenting, how we're getting paid, um, <laughs> what medications are going to be allowed to prescribe, what procedures are going to be allowed to, we're, we're going to be able to do. So that, that stuff changes. But the heart of being a physician will, will never change as far as I can see. We're going to have some adjuncts with, with the Watson computer next to us plugging in the, the diag, uh, um, symptoms and other stuff, and Watson's going to help us create a differential. Um, but, but the relationship will never change with, with a patient. And so students need to understand that part as to why they're applying to medical school, and the rest kind of will work itself out. And as long as they keep that in mind, then as they go through this process, through medical school, through residency, become physicians, as long as they keep that real reason in mind of, of those relationships with patients, then I think we're going to have happier physicians. Um, the physicians that focus too much on, oh, healthcare is changing again, my reimbursement's going down, blah, 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 then we get a lot of burnout and a lot of dissatisfaction. Right. That's the message we share as well. Uh, at what point do you prefer to start working with students? Would you like to get them when they're first interested in pre-med? Do you want them to have some experience before they start getting into the nitty-gritty with you? When do you want to see them come uh, contact you and come into your life? The, the awesome thing having the podcast is that they can come into my world as soon as they start looking for information. So I have a lot of high school students that listen to the podcast, uh, early college students listening to the podcast. They are nowhere near ready to work with me one-on-one -on -one or right. buy my books or buy my services or other things that I offer. Um, it's usually the, the application process for medical school starts in June of every year, basically. It's when you start applying. Um, I like to see students starting in, in January, basically, of that year. So about six or seven months ahead of time because then I start with them. I ask them questions like, oh, man, you need to get a little bit more clinical experience. Go contact some hospice organizations. Try to try to get in somewhere and get some more clinical experience. Then they can have a, a good solid five, six months of, of clinical experience that they can then write about and talk about in their, their applications. So the later that I start working with somebody – that I'm helping with their applications, the harder it is to do that. Um, personal statement writing happens over the course of a couple months in right. February, March, April. <clears throat> and then interview prep uh, starts as soon as people usually submit their applications and they're ready to start preparing for their interviews. So it's really a, a long <laughs> application process. And so I'm working with students throughout the year. Right. Tell us a little bit about your process. How do you get to know the patients? Sorry. How do you get to know your <laughs> students well enough so that uh, you can help them uh, develop the personal statement so that you really give them the personal attention rather than just give them the platitude, oh, you need this score or this whatever to go to the medical school? It's it's funny. A lot of the skills that that we learn through medical school on, on how to do a good history and physical, the history in this case, are very transferable to what I do now. It's a lot of asking questions, non-leading questions, some open-ended questions, and trying to listen to the story that they're telling me and pick out the important things and and trying to focus on, on those. Again, using the, the knowledge and information from admissions committee members uh, about what they're looking for in a personal statement and what they're looking for in students and trying to draw those ideas and information out of students. So it's, it's a lot of the same skills as a physician trying to develop a, a differential diagnosis. I'm doing the same thing with these students trying to get to know them. That's interesting. And, um, a, uh, through the time you've been working, there must occasionally be students that you see who just really are not suited for medical school. <laughs> Is it harder to tell them that or a pilot that he, he or she can't fly? Uh, it's, it's interesting. Uh, so it's, it's very hard to tell a pilot he or she can't fly. 
I worked with one student this past year who she emailed me and I had an email drafted up ready to go saying, look, you, you shouldn't be applying to medical school, right? Your, your grades aren't good enough. Your MCAT score isn't good enough. Your experiences aren't good enough. And I deleted that email and I said, look, you're going to have a hard time getting into medical school because of these things. If you want to try and put your best application forward, I, I will help you with that. I will, I will help you tell the best story possible for you. But it's going to be very hard with your stats. Um, and she was an underrepresented minority, so that kind of helps um, mm-hmm. a little bit. You get, I, I always tell these, these students that are underrepresented minorities, I'm like, look, use, use the cards that you were dealt. If, if you're a, a, a Latina female, Latino male, uh, a black male or female, like we need more of those people in medicine. And, and so medical schools are going to look at you a little bit differently, and that's okay. Uh, and so she ended up, I don't think, getting any interviews. And, and I didn't expect much from her, but I was very open and honest. And I said, look, it's, it's going to be very hard. Um, and I have other students that one student a couple of years ago, one of the first groups of students that I helped, he had applied to medical school four times, had taken the MCAT like seven times. And he was just terrible at writing his personal statement. He wasn't a great writer. Um, He was terrible at communicating through the interview process. And so I helped him with those things. And now he's a, I think he's a third year medical student um, in, in New York. And so I, I don't know if I've ever, ever dealt with somebody who I'm like, you're not going to be a very good doctor. There are some awkward people that I've worked with that maybe don't have the social um, skills that I would like to see in a physician, but that doesn't mean they're not going to be a great physician to somebody. Right. Uh, so, so I try to, to put that judgment aside, um, and I'm just I'm very open and honest with people. Like, look, you're, you're going to have a hard time getting in or... You're going to have an easy time. We just need to tell your story properly. So. Well, Ryan, we're getting towards the end of the hour here, so we want to obviously be respectful of your time. Uh, maybe just a couple more questions. We'll wrap it up. Yeah. Sound good? So for those of us, those of our, those uh, listening in our audience right now who would like to get involved a little bit, not necessarily to the extent you do, but just maybe help someone out at a local high school, maybe be a mentor, what's the best way to start that process? And what should they be careful about? Because maybe you don't want to give too much information at this point. You certainly don't want to have it be a session where you're going to tell them everything that's wrong with medicine. <laughs> you know, what, what, how can you be the best mentor for somebody, and how do you get that process started? So being the best mentor obviously starts with telling people to listen to my podcast. Like if, if, you're, inter- if you're a physician <laughs> interacting with pre-med students, the first thing out of your mouth is you should listen to the pre-med years. And uh, after that, it, it really comes down to kind of what I talked about earlier, avoiding talking about your journey as the, the blueprint to get into medical school. Because there, there is no checklist. There is no one way to get into medical school. And, and so if you hear a student talk about failing some classes, having some problems, and, and you interacting with them and you're like yeah you're probably not going to get into medical school you you never want to use those words because it's just not true one student uh, i actually had dinner with him recently i was at a pre-med conference at university of central florida he started his undergrad years not knowing he wanted to be a doctor was academically dismissed after getting like a one point something gpa and went on to to have a career and in some technical field and had some experiences, some exposures to, to medicine. And, and one of them being driving up to a scene of an accident, I think, and, and there's an unresponsive patient and him having this fear of not knowing what to do. That was kind of his impetus for, for thinking about becoming a doctor. Like, I, I don't know what to do. I, I would like to know what to do. This is kind of cool. And he went back to community college was taking classes with his son at community college 
and uh, worked up a good enough GPA to transfer into a four-year university down in Florida uh, and ended up getting in. I helped him with his interview prep. He ended up getting into University of Central Florida, a great new MD, four-year school, obviously. And, um, and, and so I think too many people, he actually posted his story on Student Doctor Network after he knew he was accepted. He said, as if he was starting out fresh, here's my story, what do you think my chances are? And people are like, oh, you have no shot of getting into school, don't even think about it. Like, And so, um, really, if, if you're a physician and you're talking to students, don't sugarcoat anything. You can talk about medicine and how frustrating it can be, um, but talk about those, those awesome things too, the patients that you're interacting with, the, the, the patients, um, that have had a huge impact on you as a person and and just explain to them that there are many ways to to get to where you are and uh, don't don't be so black and white about it that's excellent advice well ryan tell us where we can learn more about you about the uh, medical school headquarters and we'll obviously put all this up in the show notes too so people can take a look after the episode so my main site is medicalschoolhq.net uh, that was the original kind of uh, house that I, I built everything on. I ended up taking over a, a website that's been around for a long time called Old Pre-Meds for non-traditional pre-med students. That's kind of awesome. I have four podcasts now, um, and I, I actually built a network around those podcasts. And I have uh, invited my first outside podcast, one that I'm not actually hosting into my network from the University of Iowa, Carver College of Medicine. They, they do a podcast there at the medical school, which is an awesome podcast called the Short Coat Podcast. Um, and all of those podcasts are on what I call the, the MedEd Media Network um, for medical education. So yeah, medical school HQ or, or mededmedia.com, I think are the, the best places to go. Perfect. Well, we'll get that up in the show notes. And Dr. Ryan Gray, Thanks so much for coming on today, sharing your time with us. I know I really enjoyed it. Keith, I thought it was a great episode. Absolutely. And uh, we look forward to hearing the success stories as they continue to come in. So thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Colin. Thanks, Keith. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. We support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com. 